I'm having Justin put on the screen the cover of the evangelistic track from the Ministry of Crew, formerly known as Campus Crusade for Christ. And it was found in the, founded in the 1950s by Bill Bright with the goal of reaching college students with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Today, Crew has over 8,000 staff working in 100 different countries or close to 100 different countries around the world. And one of them happens to be our very own Kyle Coleman and his wife Carolyn uh, from our church who we support and uh, pray for regularly that are missionaries in La Crosse, home missionaries, Wisconsin with this parachurch ministry. Now, in those early years, Dr. Bright knew that they needed a concise, easy-to-use evangelistic tool. So he came up with the three spiritual laws. Law number one was we are sinful and separated from God. Romans 3.23, they quoted, uh, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And then they also quoted in spiritual law number one that we are, uh, um, the wages of sin is death which is from Romans 6, 23. That's spiritual separation. Then spiritual law number two was that Jesus Christ is God's only provision for us, for our sin. And they quoted Romans 5, verse 8, that God demonstrated his love toward us, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And also John 14, verse 6, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Then spiritual law number three was we must individually receive Jesus Christ as our Savior and Lord. And they quoted John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become children of God. And then they quoted Ephesians 2.8 and 9 there, for by grace you are saved through faith. It's not of yourselves. It's not of works, lest anyone should boast. And then they also had on there Revelations chapter 3, verse 20, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hear my voice, uh, I will come into them and dine with them and they uh, with me. Well, these three spiritual laws were all set to go to print the next day when Dr. Bright went to bed that evening in Pasadena, California. But Dr. Bright ended up having a restless night of sleep. And in the middle of the night, God led him to get up and to rewrite the three spiritual laws into four spiritual laws, backing up the first three laws, one place, and then adding a new first positive spiritual law, simply because it points to what the gospel is all about. So spiritual law number one became God loves you and offers a wonderful plan for your life. And then they quote John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but would have everlasting life. And John 10, 10, the second half there, I have come that you may have life and have it abundantly. See, that it might be a full and a meaningful life. That's what God wants for each one of us. And then the question is raised, why is it, why is it that most people are not experiencing the abundant life? And that leads into then spiritual law number two, spiritual law number three, spiritual law number four. Now, this is truly a probing question that gets to the heart of the, uh, the issue. God wants us to live full, meaningful, abundant lives, lives of purpose. And why aren't people experiencing that? It's because of sin, sin that separates us from God and, and the life that God has for us. That's why we need Jesus. Now, today we're studying in our sermon series, I Am, this very verse where the abundant life quote in John chapter 10, verse 10, that the crew uses in their evangelistic track comes from. And it's here that we learn that we can experience the best that
that life has to offer, which all comes through Christ. Can you say today that you are experiencing the best life, that the best that life has to offer? Jesus the gate is inviting you to experience that today. Jesus calls us to come to him for meaning in life. Now, to understand John 10, we first have to recognize the context of John chapter 9, where Jesus heals a man who was born blind. So if you have your Bibles open, flip back with me to chapter 9, and I'll read verses 1 and 2. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus teaches them, neither, neither. He, he's blind so that God can show his glory and reveal his glory to us. And then he takes some dirt and he spits in it and he makes some mud, rubs it on the gentleman's eyes, tells him to go to the pool of Siloam to wash it off and he'll be able to see. And he does. Then we pick up the account in verse eight. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some claimed that he was, but others said, no, no, no. He only looks like him. But he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes open, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud, put it in my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Where is this man, they asked him. I don't know, he said. They brought to the Pharisees, this man to the Pharisees, uh, who had been blind. Now that the day on which Jesus had made the mud and opened the man's eyes was on the Sabbath. Therefore, the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. I put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed, and now I see. Some of the Pharisees said to this man, is not, this man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others asked, how can a sinner perform such signs? So they were divided. Then they returned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. The man replied, he's a prophet. They still did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they sent the man's, for the man's parents. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that he can now see? Well, we know he's their son, the parents answered, and we know he was born blind, but how he can see now or who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him, he's of age, he will speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who already had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Messiah would be put out of the synagogue. That was why they asked, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. Verse 24 continues. The second time they summoned the man who had been blind, give glory to God by telling the truth, they said. We know this man is a sinner. He replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know is I was blind, but now I see. Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered, I've told you this already and you did not uh, listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Then they hurled insults at him and said, you are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this fellow, we don't even know where he comes from. The man answered, now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from, yet he opened my eyes. That's a messianic thing. When you open the eyes of someone born blind, uh, someone who is blind, 
That was a messianic prophecy from Isaiah 61. We know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly person who does his will. Nobody has ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. To this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. How dare you lecture us? And they threw him out, which probably means threw him out of the synagogue. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the son of man? Who is he, sir? The man asked, tell me so that I might believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he is the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe and worshiped him. Jesus said, for judgment, I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. And some Pharisees who were with him heard him say this and asked, what? Are we blind too? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And then we come to chapter 10. And notice how chapter 10, verse 1 begins. Very truly. Now, this is emphatic. In the original language, amen, amen. It's saying amen, amen, truly, truly. Jesus is about to clarify his previous teaching now. And here's what he says. Very truly, I tell you, Pharisees, anyone who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The one who enters by the gate is the shepherd of the sheep. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them and his fellow sheep, his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he was telling them. Jesus is using in these verses the primary illustration of a community holding pen that was close to people's homes uh, where they would bring their sheep close to home for winter grazing. And uh, in the spring and summer and fall, the shepherds were often out in the wilderness with their sheep. But when they were back home, there would be these community holding pens, uh, sort of like livery stables that used to be out in the West in the early days in our country where people traveling through could bring their horses and animals so they could be taken care of at night for a fee uh, and fed and watered and and cared for, and the next day they could uh, continue in their travel wherever they were going. Well, shepherds could bring their sheep here at night for a fee uh, for safekeeping, and then they could go home and get some rest because a watchman, a gatekeeper, sometimes they were referred to as porters, uh, would watch over the sheep. And then that watchman would only let the shepherd back in through the gate. Well, this allowed shepherds to get some rest and their animals to be looked after. And it was the thieves and the robbers who would then try to scale the walls of these sheep pens to make off with some of the sheep. So to counteract that, these community pens would often have briars and thorns that would be woven together and attached to the top of these sheep pen walls. It was sort of like razor wire or barbed wire on the top of prison fences, sort of as a last line of defense from criminal behavior. And these shepherds knew their sheep well. They had spent enormous amounts of time with them, especially when they were out in the wilderness. 
They slept with them. They counted them each night when they gathered them in. They gave them names. They inspected them for injuries and diseases. They treated them for such. And they removed thorns and burrs regularly from them. They applied ointments, oftentimes using various kinds of oil against flies. And eastern shepherds would lead their sheep out of these community pens. They would enter through the gate. They would call out to their sheep, and their sheep would be intermingled with other shepherds' sheep, and their particular sheep would follow them right out of the pen. Now, in the West, in many other parts of the world, sheep owners often drive their sheep, and they use sheepdogs to do that. They use staffs to do that. They do it on foot and sometimes on horseback, but not the Eastern shepherds. They would call out, and they would go before them, and they would lead their sheep uh, to where they wanted to go. And look at verse three again here. The gatekeeper opens the gate for him and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. Our God is a personal God. He knows us by name and he wants to be in a relationship with us. He wants to be the leader of our lives. Verse four and five again. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them. And his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And then verse 6 again. Jesus used this figure of speech, but the Pharisees did not understand what he's telling them. A figure of speech, a parable, and it has allegorical elements. The good shepherd is Jesus. The sheep in the pen were Israel and ultimately two Gentiles, which includes us as well. And Jesus is calling out to his own, the ones who should know his voice. But some in the sheep pen, which were many Israelites, they didn't follow because they didn't recognize the voice of Jesus. And that's including many of these Pharisees. Now, Psalm chapter 80, verses one through three says this, hear us, shepherd of Israel, you who lead Joseph like a flock, you who sit enthroned between the cherubim, shine forth before Ephraim, Benjamin, and Manasseh. Awake your might. Come and save us. Restore us, O God. Make your face shine on us that we might be saved. Now, this notion of the Lord being the good shepherd of Israel was hardly a foreign concept to them. In Psalm 80, Israel has been ravaged by the Assyrians, and they were asking God as their shepherd to go before them as he did in the days of old, in the desert, in the wilderness wanderings. They were also very familiar with King David's Psalm, the shepherd's Psalm that we know quite well. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You know, some do not follow because they do not recognize the voice of Jesus. John began his gospel with that very message. In John chapter 1, verse 11, it says, He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. How about you? Have you recognized the voice of Jesus 
and followed him? Have you surrendered your life to him? Because as John 1.11 says, he came to his own and his own received him not. The very next verse says, but as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become children of God. A person must place their faith in Jesus to experience the best that life has to offer, eternally and in the here and now. Now, when you do that, you will recognize that all true spiritual leadership comes through Jesus alone. Now, we've just heard a lengthy discussion about thieves and robbers, the ones who try to enter the sheep pen by other means than through the gate. And the text is saying here, anyone who tries to lead God's people apart from Jesus is a thief and a robber. True spiritual leadership comes through Jesus alone. As we've already read in John chapter 9 about the inquisitions that the blind man faced before the Pharisees, they refused to acknowledge that Jesus came from God. And in so doing, they forfeited any legitimate right they thought they had to offer spiritual leadership in the lives of people. Look at verse 7 here. Therefore, building on what's just been said now, all this before. Therefore, Jesus said again, very truly I tell you, I am the gate for the sheep. And by using this illustration, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, yes, I do come from God. In fact, I have not only come from God, but I'm also the gate and the gatekeeper. I am the one true gate for the sheep. So when you Pharisees reject me, you are disqualifying yourselves as proper shepherds of God's people. And then Jesus has these very strong words for the Pharisees in verse 8. All who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Obviously, Jesus is not denouncing all the Old Testament prophets or the judges or uh, the good kings that had been in Judah. Uh, The numbers, not all of them, but many of them had been good. Or leaders like Moses or his forerunner, John the Baptist, or anyone who came legitimately pointing people to the great I am, the one true God. But what he's referring to is people trying to offer spiritual lives to others apart from Christ like the Pharisees were doing. There is no true spiritual life apart from Jesus. He's the gate, and anyone who tries to go around him is not a true shepherd. They're actually thieves and robbers, because when they try to go around Jesus, they are rejecting the gateway of life. Look again at chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. That's the blind man here. And when he found him, he said, do you believe in the Son of Man? Who, who is he, sir? The man asked. Tell me so that I may believe in him. Jesus said, you have now seen him. In fact, he's the one speaking to you. Then the man said, Lord, I believe. And he worshiped him. The blind man did not listen to the Pharisees. Rather, he believed the voice of Jesus. And the Pharisees had rejected Jesus. So whoever listened to them was not in God's flock. You see, one of the characteristics of God's people is they listen to God. Those who truly know God and seek after him will not listen to anyone who directs them away from Jesus. The true sheep will not listen to thieves and robbers. They will run the other way. In fact, look at what verse 5 says again of chapter 10. 
but they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Verse 8 again, all, I have come, all who have come before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep have not listened to them. Verses 27 and 28 of the same chapter. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one can snatch them out of my hand. And later, in John's epistle, he's going to point out that if people are not true followers of Jesus, you know how to tell they're not true followers of Jesus? They will leave the church because they cannot stand the focus on the centrality of Christ. They cannot stand being under the authority of Christ in the church. And here's what John said in 1 John chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. Dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. This is how we know it's the last hour. They went out from us but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. But their going showed that none of them belonged to us. All true spiritual leadership comes through Jesus alone. And his sheep get that. They understand that. And they also understand that salvation comes through Jesus alone. Look at verse nine here. I'm the gate Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. We're used to having doors and gates in our lives, aren't we? We have doors in our homes, our churches, our places of work, places of business, at school. They keep the heat in and the elements out. They're also barriers to keep critters out. And even the worst kinds of critters that exist in this world, human beings with bad intentions. And doors also serve as dividers between our rooms and they allow for privacy and, and they keep noise down. On our doors, we have locks and deadbolts. Some have clasps, others have panic bars. Some are insulated while others are strictly interior doors. Some doors are even fire re resistant. We have doors with see-through glass and we have others that you can't see through at all. Some doors also stay open during business hours and are closed during non-business times. Some doors are pocket doors, others are sliding ones. Some are on hinges while others are on uh, rails. Some are even automatic. They have sensors on them. Doors are a big part of our lives, and so are gates. There are gates at public venues. You board planes at gates. You, in airports, there are train stations with gates. Businesses have gates. We use gates to keep children in certain parts of our houses and livestock in certain locations in barns or pastures. And there's no relationship between the two, but we just keep them separate like that. Uh, people have gates on their property. They even live in gated communities, wealthy suburbs where they have passcodes and access cards and there's security personnel that are in guard shacks. And I often joke with one of my brothers who lives in the township of Lakeside that he lives in a gated community. Because if you drive around that township, you will see gates all over the place in that township. In fact, he even has a gate on one part of his property. And my wife and I own property in the township of Lakeside. And guess what? There's a gate on our access road, and everybody that wants to go down that road has to have a key to unlock that lock to get down the road to go to our property 
or their other properties that are back there. A door or a gate presumes what? Something is within and something is without. Something or someone is in and something or someone is out. And Jesus is saying here by the definite article, the, that he is the gate. Just like there was one gate for the ark and there's one door for the tabernacle, Jesus is the only passageway to salvation. And now the unbelieving world is perfectly content with Jesus being a door to God. They think that's fine. And if that works for you, that's great. That's wonderful. Because Muhammad is also a door. And Buddha is also a door. And so is Joseph Smith and Charles Taze Russell. And so is nature itself. And humanism is a door. And all religions say that they lead to God. So every one of them is a door. There are many doors. But the second you try to suggest that there's only one door, there's only one gate, Jesus, all of a sudden, you just became an intolerant bigot. I am the gate. And whoever enters through me, Jesus says, will be saved. Acts 12, 4, 12 says there's no other name under heaven by which you must be saved. That's talking about Jesus. John 14, 6 that we've already mentioned. We're going to look at the next month. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those are exclusive statements, only one way. And look at what it says, the second half of verse 9 here. They will come in and go out and find pasture. William Barclay in his commentary on this verse says that coming in and going out was a Jewish way of describing a life of security and safety. He went on to say when a country was under siege, people had to stay inside the city walls. But when they were at peace and the ruler was upholding law and order, people were free to come and go as they pleased. This is also the language that Moses used in Numbers chapter 26, or excuse me, 27, verses 16 and 17, when he was praying for his successor, who was going to follow him as a leader in Israel. Here's what he prayed. May the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them, one who will lead them out and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus is the only one who saves, the only one who provides safety and security. He's the only one that can give peace that surpasses human understanding. And then verse 10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And yes, the thief ultimately is Satan, but the context here is anyone, especially leaders and teachers like the Pharisees were, who do not recognize Jesus as the gate. The ones who want to climb over the wall, the ones who want to go around Jesus, and they don't enter through the gate. And it says here that they came to kill, steal, and destroy. And that word kill there in the Greek language is the word thuo, which actually in most of its connotations means sacrifice, which was what was going to happen to Jesus. But the understanding here is that the thief is doing this, willing to sacrifice others for their own benefit. They want to lead people away from Jesus for the thief's own benefit. Jesus is saying they're in this for themselves. I'm the gate 
so that you may have life and have it to the full. Now, in the second half of this section, verses 7 through 10, Jesus is describing for us shepherding that takes place out in the wilderness. We've had the winter grazing, shepherding close to the hometown, the community pens in verses 1 through 6. Now we're talking about shepherding that's going on out in the wilderness where the shepherds would often use caves for the sheep to go in at night. They'd throw a rock in there, see if any wild animals were in there, check it out put the sheep in the cave, and then they could guard the front entrance of the cave. Or they would have these corrals that were built, piled up rocks or sticks and brush and such, uh, so that the sheep would be placed in there, this holding pen, and there was no door, but the shepherd would then lay down in the doorway. So any predators that wanted to get in had to go through the shepherd, and for the sheep, in order to them to get out and wander away off in the darkness into dangerous places, they would have to climb over the shepherd. Jesus is the gate. He's the one who lays down his life for the sheep so that we might live having life eternal and life abundant in the here and now. And abundant means beyond measure. It means over and above, more than necessary. Having a surplus, a deep soul satisfaction. Do you see the difference? The thief comes to take. Jesus comes to give. The thief comes for himself. Jesus came for others. The thief comes to kill. Jesus came to save. The thief comes to destroy. Jesus came to heal, restore, and give life meaning. The thief represents anyone or anything that tries to pull people away from Jesus as the gateway of salvation and the gateway of life. And did you notice in verse 10, it uses the word only? The thief comes only, really, for his own benefit. He's not coming for our benefit. The thief comes for our destruction. And Jesus is the antithesis of the thief. I've come that you may have life and have it to the full. Do you know this life beyond measure? Are you experiencing this life right now? This extraordinary life? This life of meaning and purpose? John said in his first epistle, chapter 5, verse 12, that whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son does not have life. That's a verse of assurance, that if we have Jesus, then we can have this life that's eternal, and we can have this life right here and now that is abundant. Jesus calls us to come to him for meaning in life. He's inviting us to experience the very best that his life has to offer, a life lived in obedience to the will of God and reflecting his glory. That's the life that we're called to live. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, today, again, as we think of Jesus, the great I am, the one who is the gate, the one who is there for our safety, our security, our protection, the one who offers us his life in exchange for our lives, and then gives us the chance to live out our lives here on earth with meaning and purpose uh, to your honor and glory, and then gives us the opportunity to live for all eternity in your presence, God. We thank you for Jesus, who's the gate. We thank you, God, for all that this represents and means. And God, I pray that in our lives, that that's the only voice in these crazy times we find ourselves living in right now, that the only voice we will be listening to is the voice of our beloved shepherd, Jesus. And it's in his name I pray.